0: Amen. If you are able, please rise as we read God's Word together, where we continue in our walk through the book of James. We're in James chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 to verse 12. Hear the reading of God's Word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought to not be so. Does it spring forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we give you thanks for the word that you have given us. We praise you that you have spoken to us through your word, that your word carries tremendous weight and impact in our lives. So Lord, I would ask that you would carry my words, the words that you've placed on my heart, and that you would take them and mold and shape lives, not by my power or my ability to speak or lack thereof, but because of who you are, that you would convict hearts and lives that you would mold us and shape us to be like Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Sticks and don'ts. Let's try that again. Thank you. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. A common phrase that we teach our children when they've been a recipient of hateful and hurtful words. We try to make things softer and gently for our kids, don't we? Because we love them and we care for them. We try to make it just a little bit easier to soften the blow of a friend or an enemy's harsh words. But the reality is, and I think we all understand, and yes, parents, we know all too well, words can actually hurt. And not just a little bit. Words can actually hurt far worse than a stick or a stone. There's a much longer lasting imprint and impact from hurtful words than there is from a sting of a stick or the cut of a stone. Words can hurt. The unique thing about our words is that they have tremendous power to hurt, but they also have tremendous power to do good as well. Both at the same time. Both can be true at the same time. To prove this, I I want to throw out a few phrases that I think uh, you're familiar with, but I want us to consider something. That we may think we know what these phrases are, but in actuality, they may mean something else. And we think they're actually doing something perhaps even funny or good, but in reality, it actually is something quite hurtful. So let's just play along with me for a second here, okay? So, peanut gallery, we've all heard this, right? So, we don't need any comments from the peanut gallery. We've all heard that, and it's usually just kind of in a joking manner of, hey, just, we're, we're doing this over here, and we don't, we don't need, you know, it's just it's kind of a, a comedic thing. But if we look at the, the, the origin of the peanut gallery, it stems back from the vaudeville area. And whatever you think about vaudeville, that's not the point. It stems from the vaudeville area where there was clear and distinct sections, and I guess in a similar kind of way that we have now, you have your VIP seats, you have your normally priced seats, and you have your cheap seats, but then there was also another section, a section in which, frankly and honestly, in that part of our country, in that time frame, it was designated for our African American brothers and sisters, and it was actually a very demeaning and hurtful phrase. We don't need comments from the peanut gallery. We think of it as comedy and, hey, this is just a funny thing to say. But in actuality, it's a very hurtful and damaging comment to make. How about this? Hooligans. Ah, oh, those hooligans over there. We, look, we think of, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old boys doing what, you know, junior high kids were doing. Ah, oh, those hooligans. Right? The word term hooligans derives from a family cartoon of characters of the same name. This was in the early 19th century, and the hooligans were a family of Irish immigrants struggling just to fit into London. And the author, the the creator of this cartoon, would have these character sketches of this Irish immigrant family doing crazy and odd, strange things that were clearly not the proper way to go about life. And the term hooligan was, once again, a very demeaning, racist, hurtful thing to say. All those hooligan boys. Eh, not so much. The last one, and this one, was, this one got me. and Maybe some of you already know what this is. I didn't know it. But it was one that, um, that came across in my research this weekend, basket case. Even that sense, if we call someone a basket case, it's usually a derogatory term to begin with, right? That's not a comedy. That's not, ah, oh, you're just a basket case. No, it's usually you're a basket case, meaning that somehow you've lost some of your mental capacity. So that's bad enough that if and when we are to use that term, we shouldn't. But the actual origin of that phrase is even much worse. Yes, it was and always has been a sense in which someone has lost some sense of ability to accomplish something. But it, in terms of what it actually comes from, is from World War I. If you know anything about World War I, it was a very violent and heinous war. There was this intersection of, of archaic technology versus modern technology, all fighting together, horses versus tanks. It doesn't quite work. And people were maimed in brutal ways. War is awful. And oftentimes in that war... Men would lose all of their limbs. And the only way that they were able to be carried off the battlefield was in a basket. They didn't have the capability of doing anything. They didn't have the ability to to make logical decisions according to those people, or they, they couldn't physically do things. And oftentimes it meant that they most likely were going to pass away. You're a basket case. Words are powerful. Words, even when we think they might be funny, or even when we think they're insulting, they can be even more powerful and damaging than we even ever thought. But words can also be wonderful and good, can't they? But words, even when we don't realize their power, have power. This is where I want us to begin to enter into James chapter three then this morning. I want us to enter in with the power of words and the incredible impact that they have on our lives. As a matter of fact, words are at the very origin of our existence, too. Not just of certain phrases, but who we are. Therefore, then, I want to start in the beginning. I want to start in the beginning. In the beginning, the earth was, out, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Imagine the scene. Imagine a place and a time in which it was so dark you can't see your face in front of your hands or your let's try that one again too <laughs> your hands in front of your face we'll get there today i promise at some point i'll get my i'll get my words together right but this is even darker than that because there was no light whatsoever it was as dark as dark can be then out of this void out of this nothing in the beginning god spoke God said, let there be light. And there was light. God separated the light from the darkness and he called that light, he called that day. He spoke that into existence. He said, this is now day. And he called the dark night. And he spoke into existence this difference between light and dark, day and night. This is the power of God's voice. Out of nothing, he spoke everything into existence. And then God said something else a little bit further in the story, didn't he? He says... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Out of the nothing, God created everything, including you and me. This is the power of speaking. This is the power of speech. But then something happened to that good creation, didn't it? Evil entered into the realm and everything changed. And how did it change? How how did this all go awry? Speech was no longer just a vehicle of good, was it? Speech also was creative and powerful in the demise of our parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis Genesis 3, someone else spoke. You want to be like God. You can have everything that he has. You can be just like God. The words were convincing and powerful, and Eve took the fruit and she ate. Through the power of speech, she was tempted, and through the power of this speech, we fell into brokenness, pain, and misery. There's power in words, and they can most definitely hurt. We know this all too well, and this is what James is getting at here at the outset of this section of Scripture. He acknowledges that we all stumble, doesn't he? He he acknowledges that we all stumble with the ability to control our tongues. We stumble with causing hurt and pain to others with our words. We know that. We've caused hurt and pain to others with our words. Maybe even today during our time of confession, that's something that we confess before our God. I hurt my friend. I hurt my spouse. I hurt my parents. I hurt my children with my words. But I wonder, have you considered ever that we hurt oftentimes ourselves with our own words? We tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves that we're not valued. We're not important. God doesn't really love me or care for me. God, God's not really in control, so I have to do something about it. We tell ourselves lies, lies of fear and doubt and these things swim in our heads. We conduct speeches to ourselves and we elegantly preach to ourselves about the way things are supposed to be, the way we want them to be, who we want to be, how we want to be. Words are powerful even when they're not said out loud. James says that if someone were to somehow gain the ability to ultimately control the tongue, then he or she would be perfect. The fact of the matter is that we know that we're not perfect. So none of us has gained that superpower. I don't have it. You don't have it. All of us stumble. We cannot actually accomplish what James is talking about. This is the challenge that we face, not only in chapter 3, but really the entirety of the book of James, right? This is what we've been dealing with for a number of weeks now. If that's the case, then, then, then where do we turn? And, and, and how do we move forward in this thing called life where our words and our mouths and our speeches are destined to hurt and cause pain to someone else or to ourselves, How do we move forward in this impossible task? I want to take us to a place of comfort, and I want us to hear some more words. I want us to hear more words of encouragement prior to us moving much further into the text of James 3 this morning. I want us to see the position that we find ourselves and the power of speech. And like we've already covered here briefly, we find ourselves evident that we can't control our tongues. We can't control our tongues as we speak to ourselves and and to others. James is then calling this situation sin. Or maybe that we or I can call that darkness. We find ourselves in the darkness of our words. In the darkness of our thoughts. And this then goes against the very will of the Lord, doesn't it? And we find ourselves in frustration and even, yes, guilt because of the words that we say and the things that we think. And we're wracked with shame and we're wracked with guilt. How do we get out? Would it be fair to say that we find ourselves this morning in the darkness of sin, with the hurt of our words? Hear these words. One from the Old Testament and one from the New. Hear the power of words. In Zephaniah chapter 3, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Hear the words of God, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Here's what I want us to hear these words this morning. You probably already know what they are. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And what? He will exult over you with loud singing in our darkness, in our guilt, in our shame. The Lord rejoices over you. The Lord quiets you with His love. And He exalts over you with loud singing. The Lord finds value in you. He loves you to the point of singing loudly over you. In the darkness and the shadow of our sin and misery, in the quiet of our own condemning thoughts, the Lord rejoices, He quiets, and He exalts this is the power of speaking, and this is the power of what the Lord does for you this day. The Lord speaks and sings forgiveness over you. The Lord speaks love over you. The Lord speaks value and gives you identity as He sings over you with pride and joy and love. And so I wonder to myself, is this how we think of God in our guilt and in our shame? Or is God that big, bad monster who's quick to condemn and cast me into judgment and condemnation? Zephaniah says he rejoices over us. He exalts over us. And he sings loudly over us. Or perhaps these words this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. But you... That powerful three-letter word in the Bible, but you are no longer in darkness, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, what, called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. How? Because God spoke and called you out of darkness into his light. And now you have identity and you have value. You have worth. The guilt is gone. The shame is gone. Why? Because you're his. And he calls you his own. Friends, we've been called out of darkness and we've been called into his marvelous light. This then is who we are in Christ. Not the lies that we tell ourselves. Not the lies that people tell about us. Not the lies and the things that we say about other people. We are God's holy people. And then the thrust of James is that we, because we're called out of the darkness and in the light, everything changes then, right? If that's true, if we've been called out of darkness and into his light, we can't be the same person that we were when we were in the darkness. We no longer fumble around, but that we can see what's around us and and our lives change. We're no longer identified by the guilt that we tell ourselves. We're no longer identified by the words that others tell us. We're identified by the words that are spoken to us by God himself and says, you are a holy nation, a people of his own possession. He's called us out of darkness of sin and into his light of grace and mercy. In other words, as we've been saying for a number of weeks now as we walk through James, as we say and proclaim that we have a living and active faith in our Lord Jesus, something must be different about us. We are not the same any longer. We're not fumbling in the dark. We have the ability to see and differentiate between right and wrong. Harsh words or kind words? Fear or confidence? Here in chapter 3 of James, we are told that because this is who we are, because we've been called out of darkness and into light, we are to control our tongues. Or maybe we can say that if we know that the Lord has spoken grace and mercy into our lives, if we hear the singing of grace and mercy over us, if we hear the rejoicing over us, if we hear his exaltation of us, then we too are to sing and echo the same song, aren't we? We're to echo the same song that's sung over us, the one of grace and mercy and love to other people. James sets out to provide a rather straightforward argument about our words and about our speech and the power of speaking. So I want to briefly walk through this lengthy, the, the, the largest discourse on the tongue, really, in, in all of Scripture. The first thing that he does is provide a warning. The warning is to those of you who want to be teachers, he says. Now, he is certainly talking about teachers of all kinds, right? Right? Anybody who teaches or or gives counsel to someone, we need to be wary of that, and we need to be conscious of the words that we're saying, that they're true and they're accurate and they're factual and all these kind of things. But really what's happening here is he's saying, if you really want to be a pastor, then you need to check yourself long and hard. Because your words carry a lot of weight. When I was in my early 30s, I had the wonderful opportunity to to meet a man who is, who is very dear to me. Unfortunately, uh, this dear, sweet man is, is struggling with with Alzheimer's now, and uh, I'm sad to see that his words don't work very well. A man who is a wonderful example of Christ-like humility, service, and and grace, and if I were to draw up a definition of what it means to speak words of kindness and grace and mercy and love and If I were to put a picture of a pastor in a dictionary, if you remember what those things are, or if you were to Google pastor, what was the pastor that would come up would be the Reverend David Williams, my friend and my mentor. When I was considering going into the path of full-time ministry, we had many, many conversations. Something that will always stick in my mind and I will always remember him telling me was to consider and do everything else before you go into full-time ministry. Try everything else before you go into pastoral ministry because becoming a pastor is difficult and it's hard. It's hard work and the microscope of God's judgment is focused a little bit tighter on a pastor. He understood the concept that not only because being a pastor is difficult but the experiences of a pastor are difficult in relationships and pressure. But really what he understood is James chapter 3. Pastors are judged more harshly and that is truly a calling to which only the Lord can call a person to. He was not questioning my calling or anyone else's calling. He's honestly examining the level to which I understood what was before me. Not as I stand up here not as I even stand before you or any other group of people, but more importantly, as I stand before the Lord God Almighty. I don't see any of them here this morning, but I actually have them. There, there are some in this congregation who are considering this very path. It's a daunting path, it's a difficult path. I'm not here to call and to question the call but to wonder, are you really prepared to become a pastor? Let's just slice that a little bit and say, are you prepared as a teacher, a parent, a friend, a confidant? Your words have weight, and they're powerful. Be careful what you say. Be careful how you say it. Be sober-minded about the task that lies before you. So it's not just only for pastors, but it's for anyone who's teaching anybody anything. How you teach someone to ride a bike. How you teach someone to use chopsticks. I still haven't figured that out. Be warned, is what James is saying. Your words have power and they have impact. But then following this brief warning in verses 1 and 2, he, gives, he, he goes further and talks about the dynamics and the power of words. And once again, he's clear to, to recognize and to include not just some people, but everybody. He's saying this is, isn't just for that person over there that we think has a problem with controlling their tongue. That person who just says whatever comes into their mind and doesn't really care about the consequences. We know that person, right? We've all been in that room before. Just tone it down a little bit. We we know that person. It's not just for that person. All of us. He says all of us stumble. It continues to amaze me how James is careful to have the reader understand that very aspect of what he's saying. To, to be inclusive in his exhortation and in his counsel. Once again, in chapter 3, James is pressing into the hearts and lives, not of somebody else, but of me and of you. He's saying, pay attention. Pay attention because we've all messed up. We all fail, we all stumble are the words that he uses. And so this is not just a message for someone over there. It's not a message for that person that's terrible and awful because we are the person that is that person. It's not an exhortation on the pride and the arrogance that spews from someone else's mouth. It's a message for us. We have a hard time controlling our time. And the message is clear. It's pretty black and white. If you say with your mouth, if you speak words and say, I'm a Christian. I have faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you can't control your tongue. We need to call on the question of our faith. Is it living? Is it active? This is what James is saying. If you've been called out of darkness and into light and you can't control your tongue, then we need to have another evaluation of who we are and what we are and the legitimacy of our faith. And then he says we're all guilty. The convicting part of what James is speaking about is not only that, but also the double-mindedness of our words. He says not only are we guilty of that, but we're actually guilty of something even far more heinous than that. When we enter into this place this morning to come into worship, we desire to have praise and worship on our lips. We put our best foot forward. We're sincere and and truthful in our words and in our worship. I I don't doubt that. I don't think James does either. He's fully acknowledging the, the legitimacy and the reality of our worship and saying, I believe that you are sincere in who and what you think Jesus is for you and your worship of him. However, we live double lives. You see, when it serves us well, we live with a smiling, gracious spirit about who we are as Christians. When, when it serves our own agenda, I and mean, when we think it's good and right to do so, we play that card and we play it a lot. We saying this is who I am. We come into worship and we say, I'm going to worship in spirit and truth, and we are very sincere in that. But then, in the very next breath, we curse God. We doubt Him. And we wonder, God, are you really in control? Do you really have things under wraps? because it sure seems that things spinning out of control and you don't know what you're doing. Or perhaps in church we are kind with our words and we're gracious to others. We're thoughtful of one another. We shake one another's hand and we say good morning may the peace of Christ be with you. And we going to the parking lot over here, we get into our cars on our way home, and we say, can you believe yada, yada, yada? Can you believe so-and-so? I can't believe... On one hand, we bless. On the other hand, we curse. And James says we're all guilty. It's not for somebody else. This is for us. We worship and then we curse. We give grace, and then we judge. James chapter 3 is really getting at the heart of our double-mindedness of our sin. And it hurts. And it's convicting. And it's hard to hear. And we don't like it. I think a lot of us are uncomfortable with James because we don't like to hear things telling us that what and who we are need some adjustment and need to be recalibrated. And yet this is the very tenor of James, and specifically in James chapter 3. Your words matter, my words matter, how we treat one another and how we speak about one another. And what we do, it matters. It matters because Jesus did this for us and Jesus spoke us into existence and Jesus has called us out of darkness and into his light. And so I wonder if we can ask ourselves this morning, Do we hear the loud singing? Do I hear the exaltation of my Savior over me? Do I hear His rejoicing of of who I am? And I must be honest with you, I don't hear that very often, and I don't know that many of us do. Because our own self-righteousness drowns out the song. Our own justification drowns out the exaltation. Our own agendas and thoughts, the way things are supposed to be and what we want them to be, drowns out the rejoicing of our Lord and Savior over us. This is the double-mindedness of our words and our thoughts and our actions. And so James is imploring you and me this morning and asking us, Can a fresh spring flowing out of the hills produce fresh and salt water at the same time? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is clearly no. Can a fig tree produce olives? The answer is clearly no because it's supposed to produce figs. An olive tree produces olives. So how is it then that someone who has a living and active faith can speak words of hatred and vitriol, of condemnation and judgment and skepticism? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is they can't. James then is not only challenging teachers and pastors, but rather he's challenging us all. What are our words used for today? Are they used to encourage and edify? Are they charged with doubt and skepticism and judgment and fear and cursing, as James says in chapter 3? You see, there's power in speaking, isn't there? And so what do we do? Oftentimes I wish I had a, uh, an easy button on this pulpit here. You know that one from Staples. Staples where they press the button that's easy and everything is right and good and made nice and tidy and all the things on the shelves and staples are ordered and organized just right? I wish I had one of those. I don't. What I have as your pastor is to offer you grace and mercy. Not from me. But from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What I have is to offer you words that He spoke to you. And those words are these. We've heard them already. But you are a chosen race. He chose you. He chose you. You are a royal priesthood. You've been adorned with the garments of a priest. Or maybe we can say you have access to God himself as only a priest can. And they are understanding what a priesthood is. They could go into the holy of holies. They could go into the very presence of God. God called you. He chose you and says, come. Come into my presence. Come and speak with me. He says, you are a holy nation. You are set aside as something different and other. You are no longer in the darkness, but you are in the light because of what Jesus has done for you. And he speaks these things to you through the work of Jesus Christ. And then he says, you are a people of his own possession. You are not the world's. You are not the government's. You are not Redeemer Arlington's. You are not your God's. He chose you. He says, come into my presence. He sets you apart. And then if that's not enough, he calls you his son, and he calls you his daughter, and he adorns you with holy garments. And he says, you are mine. Why? So that you could proclaim, or in other words, that you might speak the excellencies of him who saved you through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He says, once you had no value, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you didn't have mercy, and now you do. But now you have received mercy. This is the word that God speaks to you today. When our words fail, his words sing loudly over us. So with these words being sung over our lives, may we then echo the chorus of grace and mercy. May we sing that song because there's power in speaking. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you've spoke truth into our lives, that you've given us grace and mercy, that you've called us to yourself and that you call us yours. So mold us and shape us May we be men and women that follow after you and your grace and your mercy that you have bestowed upon us. This Lord, as we come to your table now, may we see and know and experience this very grace and mercy through this bread and through this cup that we might see and taste and touch and be fed by your grace and mercy because you've called us out of darkness and into your light. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.